Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Peter Crone. Now, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because uh, Peter has been on a, a number of shows that I've watched. I've listened to him speak a few times before, and I appreciate some of the frameworks that he brings to how we can better improve our lives, better improve our minds. So let me tell you a little bit about him. So he's a, a leader in human potential and performance. Uh, he devotes and has devoted his life to sharing insights, distinctions, and strategies for people to live an inspired life and thrive by awakening new levels of awareness. He helps reveal the limiting subconscious narratives, which we talk quite a bit about in this show, that dictate our behaviors, our health, our relationships, our performance, and ultimately all of our results. Most people go through life as a prisoner of their mind, and he helps to dissolve the mental shackles that hold us back so we can experience true freedom and discover an entirely new experience of being a human being. So he has worked with all types of people, professional athletes, global organizations, leaders, royalty, executives, etc. Uh, he's really sort of worked with quite a few people uh, and his commitments, his commitment is to share his perspective and inspire the realization of a new way of living. So, okay, that's a little bit about him. Obviously, a bio, you know, doesn't always give us a good sense of who a person is. But what we really dive into in this interview is a little bit about Peter's experience, his life. He shares a few uh, a few things about his past and uh, and and then we get into the structures and the frameworks, right? Peter is known as the mind architect. He really talks quite a bit about how we can reorient our thinking patterns to have better strategies for how we live in life. So we talk good, a good amount about the subconscious mind. We talk about how to deal with things like anxiety, how to confront those things, um, how to navigate them and restructure our thinking in order for us to move through anxiety in order for us to work more effectively with things like anxiety or depression. Um, and Peter lays out some of the frameworks that he that he uses and, and, and that he deploys when working with professional athletes like baseball teams he's uh, helped work with. I think it was the Arizona Cardinals for a number of years. Uh, and and was the sort of like mindset performance coach for the organization, for the players. So we dive into what performance looks like and how we can structure our thoughts, structure our cognitive thinking and processes in order to get the best results out of ourselves and out of our life. So it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We will definitely have him back on the show. Uh, but I would love to hear what you think. So don't forget to share this episode. If you share it on a platform that I'm on, make sure that you tag me. But don't forget to share it with somebody that you know will appreciate the conversation. And if you are tuning into this, let me know what you think. DM me on Instagram, leave a comment on YouTube. I would love to hear if you would like to uh, learn from more guests like P Peter Crone. So without any further delay, please welcome Peter Crone. Good. Thank you, my friend. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, likewise. It's, it truly is such an honor to have you here. I feel like uh, I really I really admire and, and appreciate your work, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. And yeah, so let's let's just dive in. I think, as you know, I usually start by asking my guests the same question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. And so let's just begin there. Well, thank you, first of all, for the kind words. I appreciate that. I'm always flattered to get that sort of reflection, how my work has impacted people. So thank you. A story. I think, you know, probably the most pivotal one is because it really started my own sort of deep dive into the illusion of who we think we are is when I had sort of fallen madly in love with a, a young gal who at the time, you know, this was 20 something years ago, I thought was love and the best interpretation I could have of love as a young buck. Uh, but it was a distinct moment, you know, where there was a profound connection and that led to a series of events where to begin with, she was dating someone and then we established our connection. We went to this lunch together with a mutual friend just by chance or by fate. And it was the first time we'd ever been together uh, outside of where we first met, which was in a big party environment. Like there was no way that we could have any sort of kind of intimate conversation together. So this friend invited me to go to lunch. It was this girl's birthday. And so I was like, yeah, let's go. 
And the mutual friend had to leave the table at one point to take a phone call. So at that moment, in terms of the history of the universe, without sounding too melodramatic, you know, it's the first time that the two of us had ever been together alone. And so this is about four or five days post the event. And I turned to her and I said, is this was the first words out of my mouth verbatim. I said, is there anything about the other night in particular that you remember? And the first, the first words out of her mouth were, I just wanted you to pick me up and take me away. Right. So sort of speaking to this cross the crowded room moment that we shared. So suffice to say that's sealed our fate. And anyway, I thought from that moment, wow, this is amazing. You know, and all the euphoria and excitement and these massive expectations of whatever's going to happen. And then that all sort of came crashing down a few days later when a boyfriend had found out that, you know, there was some sort of chemistry afoot and he didn't approve and he sort of ran the nest and shut that down rapidly. And so I went into this moment of despair, which for me, even back then was quite an anomaly. But cut to about a week later, I get a random call from, and she's, this is all in Australia. I met her in Australia. Anyway, she calls me from Sydney airport and says, can you come and pick me up? And I'm like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, I quit, quit the boyfriend. And, and that started our journey together. So that was that was the beginning. And then the genesis of that was beautiful until we got to the point that is the impactful part for me. She left me about a year and a half later and said my love was too suffocating, which at the time I didn't understand. In hindsight, it made total sense, which is I was being driven by the fear of loss because my parents had passed when I was young. And so she represented externally that depiction of real value to me. And so I was holding on in ways that I was oblivious to. Um, but energetically in a relationship that was a bit, like she said, suffocating. I was incredibly loving, incredibly affectionate, incredibly generous, but all as somewhat an addendum to my natural versions of those, right? It was like, I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm caring. But I did more because I didn't want her to ever leave me because I'd been hurt from my previous loss. Mm. So of course, life set me up for success, which is pulled her out of my life. I fell apart pulled every friend I had under the sun in terms of counsel and how can I ever get it back? And, you know, that didn't work. <laughs> and there was about a seven, a seven, eight week window where we weren't in communication. And then I was sitting in this rent control apartment in Southern California. And I suddenly realized the answer to all of my questions. And my questions had been incessant for weeks to the point of I couldn't sleep. I lost weight, which was, where is she? Will she ever you know, will I ever see her again? Is she dating someone else? Will I ever find love like that again? And the answer was three words. And it sort of completed the questions, all of them. And it was, I don't know. I don't know when I'll see her again, if I'll see her again. I don't know if she's dating someone. I don't know where she is. I don't know if I'll find love like that again. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I'd never known what was going to happen. But I'd never known that I never knew what was going to happen. I'd always been trying to figure it out, like most people, because fundamentally, we're, you know, in a survival paradigm. And so we're always trying to protect ourselves. So for the first time in my life, I was one introduced to the fact that life itself is uncertain. And two, I found complete and profound acceptance with not knowing. And it was the most liberating experience of my life. So even though on the surface, it looked like subjectively her leaving me was bad, it was the greatest gift that life had ever given to me. Beautiful. I mean, it's I appreciate you sharing the story because I feel it's very relatable. I think it's interesting how many people have, you know, how many people come to a deeper realization of themselves after an ending. Yeah, And I find that it's like, it's in those moments of limitation of ending of loss where we seem to grow deeper into our, so we can, right? Or we can double down on our mechanisms, on our patterns and our beliefs and our behaviors yeah. And go and repeat the whole show again. <laughs> yeah. so, more drugs, drink more alcohol. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like numb it out, drink it out. Well, kind of want to get, I, you know, I kind of want to get into it because I feel like that's a stop for how you stepped into the work that you do. Yeah. And, you know, usually, obviously, I read people's bio in the beginning, but I really would love to just start with how do you describe the work that you do? Because I, I find that it's, it's very necessary, it's very needed, but I think it's also sometimes for people, it's like working in the realm of the of the, the tangible and the intangible. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you can just sort of describe for, in your own words what you help people confront or face or or do or understand. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that's why I came up with the moniker, the mind architect, right? Because to call myself a coach or a spiritual teacher, it all seems so sort of contaminated already with meaning, you know? Mm. And so I wanted to generate a space, in this case, a title called a mind architect, which would inspire some curiosity, right? Which to me is our nature, but it becomes sort of suppressed by us thinking we know something, ironically, like sort of the knowing mind is kind of stagnant, right? Whereas a kid, children are like voraciously curious because they don't know. And so there's a joy, there's an aliveness, there's an inherent exploration that I think most adults lose because, well, they know that it's not going to work out with their ex-wife or they know that their mother-in-law is a complete, you know what, and like there's a knowing. So, so that's part of my work was to actually start to create an actual placeholder in terms of how people perceive me. So it opens up those channels of exploration again. And then that sort of cascades into the work, which is to open up a new portal for them. So I'm not a solution guy. I'm not here to solve people's problems. I'm here to dissolve whatever's in the way of what I would assert is the innate ability to feel free, joyous, vital, alive, powerful, et cetera, et cetera. So my work is very much about bringing awareness to the primary constraints that people have, some of which are conscious, but the majority are actually unconscious. So these blind spots that people might refer to, and then recognize the illusion or the inaccuracy of those constraints. Mm. Uh, through language, recognizing that, for example, somebody saying I'm not good enough is not an actual emphatic truth, but rather it's a narrative that's got sufficient evidence from childhood to give it some validity, but it's only a statement of agreement over time that they're stuck within. And so we'll investigate the true validity of a statement like that, recognize that it's not a truth, like I'm not going to find not good enough anywhere in you, it's a conversation. And so my work is truly introducing people to this new space, this new world of freedom that is on the other side of the constraints of their subconscious. Mm, yeah, well said. You know, I think it's it's interesting because in my in my framework, like my my background is is in Jungian psychology, and I do a lot of work with specifically men or couples around the shadow, right? The things that are in the way sabotaging, and I can hear some some forms of similarity to what you're saying, you know, these like snags that get in the way of us being able to achieve or attain or be what it is that we are capable of in some capacities. And I'm curious, like what, you know, kind of described what set you on the path. I'm curious of what you've drawn from over the years that has helped you develop this this framework and this sort of quote-unquote architecture that you use today like because i'm always fascinated by you know who who we've drawn from or what we've what we've done to come into this type of wisdom so what have i pulled from in order to be able to do the work yeah i mean multiple aspects of my own personal experience as i was saying the one story of the girl that i met fell in love she left me the deep fear of loss that got revealed to recognize wow you know, even the narrative around loss to me was like so profoundly shifted. I didn't lose my parents. They died, you know, and that might seem like a little bit more of a cold hearted way of describing it, but it's the truth. Right. And so loss implies there's something now missing in me or my life. And so then I'm going to already be reinforcing the ever present feeling of inadequacy that humans have. I didn't want to, you know, have any sort of addition to that. So that, you know, my own personal experience has probably been the most pivotal contributor to my understanding. I'm very much the, the lab rat in my own work, you know, like I'm not here to repeat what a professor said at school. I want to figure it out for myself and then share what I feel is sort of both appropriate and inspiring. And then, you know, I've pulled from a lot of Eastern tenants of Advaita Vedanta, which is a non-dualistic way of looking at life. I'm an Ayurveda practitioner which is part of the lineage of, you know, yoga through healing, looking at someone's natural constitution versus their constitution today because of the deviation through diet and lifestyle. So reconciling that, how we might have a natural tendency to be healthy is my assertion, but because of the way we live, we drift away from that and that creates sickness and disease. 
And so there are so many components of Ayurveda, the tenants within it that are so beautifully aligned with what I'm doing for people's sort of mental illnesses as well, where they drifted away from their own understanding of how extraordinary they are, that they're a divine sovereign being. So yeah, and then just a ton of reading. And then obviously my work with clients has been so gratifying because I work with people in all arenas of life, some of which I'd never been exposed to in my own life. Like I grew up in England, you know, with a soccer ball at my feet. And then all of a sudden I'm accountable for the mental sort of stability of an MLB, you know, baseball team. <laughs> One of my friends from England called me when he found out. He's like, so, so Pete, what do you tell them? Just keep their eye on the ball? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. Like, that's that's all I'm telling them. Keep their eye yeah. on the ball. These guys are getting paid collectively a hundred and something million dollars and just, you know, yeah, keep your eye on the ball. You'll be fine. So, but just my point is by virtue of being introduced to many different industries, sports, individuals like that equally is a way that I've sort of managed to hone my craft by having to pull from different metaphors and analogies that they can relate to. You know, if I'm working with a show jumper, again, I've never dealt with horses, but it's, you know, there may be some sort of similarities and overlap with other sports. But if I start talking about, you know, you've got to keep your head down and make sure that you hit that eight iron beautifully square. It's like, wait, what? What's this guy talking about? You know, mm. so so that's really been quite pivotal as well. It was just to actually be doing the work with people, you know, seeing the feedback. And for me, profoundly, like, you know, the gift of recognizing how how it works, you know, people who've been diagnosed with God knows what for many years, and even on different prescription drugs and coming off of that and finding freedom like they'd never knew was even possible is that's a beautiful confirmation of how once we step beyond the constraints, the primal constraints of our subconscious, there's an entirely different experience of being human. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I hear you saying, and that I've noticed about your work is that and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm curious to get your take, is that it's is almost like deeply embedded in the language that we use. And the, some of the like, the shifts in our language can bring us closer to the authenticity of our experience. Yeah, You know, like you gave that example about your parents and, and how the shift between I lost my parents versus my parents died is almost like it gives us permission to get closer to the grief of the experience of of that event happening. Yeah. So what, you know, first off, sort of two parts. One, do you agree with that or how would you alter that? And then secondly, what role do you think language plays in in your work and then also just in in the development and and of of the individuals that you work with? Beautiful question. I mean, you're 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 spot on, you're sharp, you're a great listener. And you've obviously done your own work. So I would say for the first part, I totally agree. You know, if you let's look at like I'm looking at my laptop as I do this, you know, conversation with you. And the laptop is working by function of software that's installed on an operating system, right? And the operating systems improve over time. They become quicker and more intelligent, et cetera, et cetera. The speed with which we used to do dial up when it was, you know, showing my age, like a phone line and, you know, then it would drop and, you know. So suffice to say, we've come come quite a long way in certain arenas of life and others, not so much. But so the operating system holds the software. The software is a functionality. It's a, based on code, right? So right now, like I look at the screen and there's like a red button that, you know, represents where I can hang up. Now, if someone knows how to code this software, they could turn that into purple or green, right? So now, why I'm sharing that as a comparison to your question is because it's instantaneous based on how they change language, mm. right? So someone who knows how this software works would know where to find that piece of language code that represents turning that hang-up button from red to green. And by changing the language, we literally have a different appearance. It's no different with a human being. It may seem a little bit more complex because you've got emotions and history and sentimentality and evidence. And, you know, we're sentient beings versus a computer is just responding to language. So, but it is the same principle that if someone's living within the construct of I'm not good enough, that's a piece of code. Then once that code is removed, in my case, it's more a dissolution process. I'm not going to say you are good enough. That's 
you know, that's really the role of a mother or a loved one who's trying to placate their feeling of inadequacy, which it's nice to hear, it just doesn't do anything, you know? So, so language is to go to your second part of your question, like it is paramount. Like one of my quotes, I say language or words are the wardrobe for the soul. So in that way, I would expand on that and say the soul is boundless, but words become the container for the way that it is formed and therefore how it functions. So, you know, just got a bottle of coconut water here. But if I was to pour this out into a glass, I could say I have a glass of coconut water and then I could put it in a mug and I'd have a mug of coconut water. Coconut water couldn't care less. It's just taking on the shape of the container. Right. So our soul representing coconut water will take on the shape of whatever the language is based on somebody's identity, even though, you know, they've got all the evidence for it from their history. It's not actually who they are. It's just a temporary container, although temporary for most people is sadly a lifetime because they don't get to break out of it. My work is to reveal the container without judgment you know, and see, well, if there's a bigger container you could step into on the other side of feeling inadequate, feeling insecure, feeling like your life is based on scarcity, would you be interested? And I've yet to meet anyone who isn't, because that's a much more expanded view of themselves in life. And it brings forward, you know, a series of miracle events that is now in alignment with that new frequency, that new residence that they are going to emit based on the fact that they're no longer confined. So, mm. so yes, words are quite important is what I'm saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love and appreciate the explanation because I do think that, you know, I do think, what's the quote? Words create worlds. I don't remember who, who that's by, uh-huh. but I do think that that's a very articulate <clears throat> statement that's sort of pointing to the realities of our internal uh, architecture, I guess, you know, just to yeah. kind of like refer back to, to yeah. you know, what you do because it, does create a perspective. It does create this sort of filtration system that we then interact with the people in our lives, that we then interact with ourselves, that we then interact with the social structures that are around us from. And I appreciate your approach because it's, it's you know, it's sort of like a psycho-spiritual approach, right? It's the combination of, of psychology and spirituality. And there's sort of, there's a lot going on in there. At least that's my, that's the, like the labeling that I would put on it. So Tell, tell me a little bit about the this sort of confinement and contraction or or prisons that we can find ourselves in cognitively. You know, things like anxiety, things like depression, you yeah. know, that's the sort of like pathological labels for them. But how would you say that those things come about? And when you're working with individuals, what does it look like to help them remove themselves from from those confines i think i asked probably too many questions all at once so i'll let you i'll let you take uh which one you actually want to tackle that's what i can remember no i get it so for sure language you know to go back to the first part of what you were sharing like it really is you know it's it defined it's definitive right it defines us and it's definitive it's not who we are but it defines us right so you take something like a nationality, it's pretty benign, right? Like I'm English, you're American or Canadian, or, you know, someone is like, you know, Finnish or Danish or French. So right there, even in language, we create some form of separation, right? Like, so if I'm one particular nationality and you're another, you're creating this fragmentation, not saying it's wrong or bad, but what I would assert we're all wanting is a sense of unity of a sense of connection and intimacy and affinity with people. So let's say, you know, somebody from America is on holiday, and they're in Spain, and they don't speak very good Spanish. But then they're at a restaurant and at a table next to them, they hear an American accent, there's this sort of sense of excitement and sort of affinity with the people and they get chatting like oh my god like uh, where are you from and right so so language creates that feeling of connection but it also creates both you know the feeling of separation and then you know fear or anxiety or depression based on isolation or concern of potential threats right if you're in a place where you don't know people because of the perceived sense of separation through language then your environment can be, you know, quite scary, right? So, so leading into anxiety and depression, I would say that they, those are, as you said, pathological, they're symptomatic of the way that someone's identity is created. So if somebody's living in a fundamental world of fear, 
you know, looking at the spectrum of that emotion, we've got panic and terror right out there at the far end. And then we could say anxiety is sort of a close bedfellow, fear, worry, concern, mild apprehension, right? Like as it sort of cascades down to like lesser and lesser expressions of that. But it still fits within the relationship to life of some perceived threat. So if we're looking through a lens of perceived threat that gives rise to the experience, the sentient feeling of anxiety, then my view of life, the fundamental prison I'm looking through, must be something in the arena where I don't feel secure. Now, that could be psychologically, emotionally, physically. Sometimes people don't feel physically safe where they are. And so they're walking down a street late at night, especially if it's, say, a woman and, you know, it's a bit of a sketchy area. It's going to be natural for her to have a feeling of anxiety because the way she's relating to her environment is from a place of, I don't feel safe in this space. But the I don't feel safe is still based in code and language. Now, there's an, there's an, there's an energetic experience. You can be in a room that is very secure, but someone walks in and you feel like this sort of repulsion. You feel this concern for their energy. Their dynamic is like a little bit threatening or hostile. That could equally create anxiety. But it's really fundamentally to me, it's the way we look at life, the way we relate to life is the precursor to the way we feel. And the way we look at life is a perspective which is based on language. So anxiety and depression, they're sort of further down the cascade of creating an experience based on our view. If my view of life is I'm a failure because of the events that I've had in my life that to me were not sufficient or they were under, you know, I underachieved in the way that I wanted to, whether it be school, performance, sexuality, on a sports team, whatever it is, then I look back and go, I'm a failure language. That's going to be a depressive emotional experience. But if I don't look at those events as I'm a failure, but rather that's what happened, and it may not be what you intended, and it may not even be what you wanted, but if you can come from a lot more compassion and forgiveness of yourself that you were doing the best you could at the time, and perhaps if you want to improve, you can practice, learn, get counsel, whatever it is, then there's no depression. There's just what happened. So mm. the depression and the anxieties, in fact, I would assert all of the diseases that people have, which then cascade into the physiology eventually and become a disease or a sickness, is because of the absence of ease. The absence of ease is the experience we have because of the lens we're looking through. The lens is based on the programming, which brings us back to language. So mm. hopefully that answers the multitude of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I threw, I threw a bunch out there. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, what's, what's interesting is, and again, I don't know who to cite on this, but I remember hearing that something along the lines of, you know, depression is a, a past-based condition and anxiety is a future-based condition. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's like a language that we tend to inhabit and use with those sort of different experiences is different, right? When you're, when you're anxious and you're dealing with anxiety, you're generally using future-based language, concerned about something that hasn't happened or might happen or potentially will. And then depression is things that, that are left unhealed, unchecked from the past, right? Yeah. And so, so, okay, where do we go from there? Like, how do we start to sift through, you know, should we just, should people just be, you know, cause I can kind of hear my listeners being like, wow, this is awesome. And what do I do with this? Like, how do I grasp this? How do I right. implement this? Is it about using language that brings us back to the present moment? Is it about becoming more aware of the language that, that we're using and the impact that it's actually having? Like, I, I would just love for you to give some some insight onto that. I know, again, that's a very general question, but I feel like you'll have to. No, no, but it. it's a good one. And I do hear, like, intuitively the same potential response from your listeners. So I always want to try and leave people with takeaways beyond what my work is really, you know, pointing to is usually sufficient, right? Like the awareness of something is oftentimes all that's needed. But then, yeah, you've mm -hmm. got to practice that new awareness. So the takeaways are really... It starts with awareness, right? So meaning if someone out there is listening right now and they struggle with anxiety, which many people do, especially in this current climate, a lot of uncertainty. So the first thing to do is be okay with it. And that might seem like <laughs> the hardest thing to do because people resist like crazy. Like 
it's sort of a human predisposition to not want to have any feelings that are discomforting, right? So the escape, the numbing, the whatever it is that we need, whether it be prescribed drugs, street drugs, you know, self-medication. So anxiety as a feeling is just a feeling, like any feeling. And what it's actually representing is a part of us that has never really felt secure. So if we can imagine, and I often use the term my scared in a roommate or my nervous little sibling, like I've got this adorable little brother who travels around with me everywhere and he's always worried. He's always asking me to look out for things. Like however it helps for people to contextualize it, whether it be a roommate, a lover, uh, it's usually like easier to look at a younger sibling because this is the younger part of us, right? Mm. So if whoever's dealing with anxiety right now, if they could just, first of all, just be okay, just sit still, have some love and compassion for yourself. You're just having a feeling. It's okay. Then we can start to look at it from a perspective of like, okay, if I'm grounded and I can be sufficiently okay with the fact that I'm just having an emotion, I'm having a feeling. And now I can start to investigate the feeling. I can start to, okay, you know, usually breathing helps like nice, slow, what I call LSD, right? Long, slow and deep breathing. <laughs> the most natural <laughs> form of LSD there is. Yeah. And, you know, go, okay. So anxiety is anxiety. It's not bad. But what is it that has me feel anxious? What is it about me that I am concerned about? Like it could be obviously something to do with someone's health, a loved one who's maybe struggling right now. Many people are losing their livelihoods. They're, you know, being laid off. People could be genuinely scared about a virus that's out there. They could be concerned about what's going on in politics or going on in their local city with mandates. Like there's a myriad of different, you know, pick your poison right now, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. to be worried about. So then that could be what we would see as the quote unquote catalyst. It's the trigger. It's not the cause. So then we take that deeper and go, okay, well, it's because of X that I feel anxious. That's how it occurs, right? That's the apparent world that is the reason for my anxiety. It's not the actual reason. But someone's feeling anxious because let's say they don't know when they're going to get a job again. Got it. Now, beneath not knowing when you're going to get a job again, there's like, there's a conversation about security, right? It's not about a job. It's about like livelihood, income, which then cascades down into buying food, paying rent and things that are like, you know, truly important to survival. So we get it. So we have compassion. But to go back to my, you know, initial answer to your first question What's beneath that is complete uncertainty, right? Mm. So the person who right now is struggling with anxiety because they don't know when they're going to get a job again, if I were to turn around to them and say, listen, yes, you're not going to have a job for about three or four weeks, which can seem like an eternity when you don't have any income. But in a month, you're going to get a job and it's 50% more pay than you were receiving before. And that's going to happen. How would you feel right now? And chances are they would have an immense amount of relief and maybe even potential excitement. They may even start to become more animated and active in their life in terms of getting in better shape or tidying up their house as preparation for the fact that they've got this new opportunity coming. Now, all that happened in that exchange is I used a different form of words. You've got a job in three to four weeks. Language, again, that elicits a different state, the different state feeling creates different actions. And those actions are ironically the precursor to that better outcome. Mm. So the anxiety is no different, ironically, than excitement. I would say they're both two sides of the same coin. One has got a perception of a future that is a favorable outcome, and one has got a perception of a future that is unfavorable. Either way, what I want people to understand is it's created. It's not actual. And that's where the power comes in. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So when people even tell me they're scared of the unknown, I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't be scared of the unknown. You're scared of your own thoughts that you're projecting into the unknown. Mm. And that's a very powerful distinction for people to understand. So that's my invitation. Sit still with yourself. Come first from love. Notice it's okay. You're human and you're, quote, unquote, allowed to have emotions. Secondly, understand where does the emotion come from? And invariably, whatever people are feeling, it is a 
continuation, the propagation of stuff that they experienced as a child. If someone is feeling anxious because they don't feel safe in their environment, chances are they grew up in a house where there was a lot of, you know, mercurial outbreaks. Maybe, you know, parents would raise their voice or they were moving from home to home a lot. There was no sense of stability. And now they're a 30, 40, 50 year old who's actually still in the semblance of that same feeling of absence of security. So their anxiety is just a continuation of the fact that the little version of them never felt safe. And so that's the opportunity is go, wow, if I, as an adult, could go back into that environment where the kid was sitting and scared in their bedroom, listening to their parents fight, and I could walk carefully into the bedroom and go over and sit next to them and put my arm around them and say, it's okay, I'm here with you. That's the action. You know, that's the, I've got you. I don't know what's going to happen, but I've got you and we're going to be okay. Yeah, well said. I I appreciate you laying out some of that framework and just giving people some guidance as to how they can approach this. And, you know, I do think it's interesting. We're we're talking quite a bit about the unknown and you're, you were saying, because I think one of the, one of the things that's very common is that people have the perspective that they're afraid of the unknown. And I like what you said, that it's, it's actually not about the unknown. It's your perspective, your belief, your thoughts about what you yeah. projected onto the unknown, right? Yeah. The unknown isn't an inherent threat. It's that your mind, your beliefs, your thoughts have created that it's a threat and put that, overlaid that on top of it. I'm yeah. curious, I had a gentleman named Stephen Jenkinson on the show and he used the words death, death phobic culture. He said that we live in a death phobic culture yeah, 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 and that we are very afraid of death. And so there's all of this, scaffolding that we've put in place society social like socially culturally and even within our minds to try and avoid the existence of death and i'm curious to get your thoughts on that because as you spoke about this i couldn't help but think that in some ways our fear of the unknown right the thoughts that we manufacture about it is related to our unwillingness or our fear of endings of limits limitations yeah. and and ultimately of death and i'm curious to get your thoughts on that it's i mean a beautiful question and i it's one of my favorite topics which may sound a little bit macabre <laughs> <laughs> wow this guy's dark he loves death right and i'll tell you why because in order to stay alive we have to constantly die you know mm-hmm. so like the metaphor of a snake shedding its skin right so real question is who is scared of dying mm. Who, who, who in there that's scared of death? Like what aspect of you is scared of dying? Because we're multifaceted beings, right? Like on many dimensions, am I talking about your physicality? Am I talking about your belief structures as it relates to a tradition or a religion or some sort of ideology? Am I talking about your potential value in the marketplace because you're being, you know, let go of or you're retiring as a professional athlete? Like I have to help a lot of guys and girls who, you know, I've got all of the kudos and the acknowledgement of being a pro athlete, and then they retire even in their mid 30s. And it's like, well, you know, that's a form of death, right? So, mm-hmm. so first of all, we've got to recognize where are we speaking from? Now, I understand the question is more about the actual fatal aspect of being human, like I'm not around anymore. But I would still invest, you know, I'd still invite people to investigate who's the eye that's not going to be here, right? <laughs> so, in the Hindu traditions or Eastern philosophies, you know, they, they, they say they cry with the born and they celebrate with the dead, right? Because they know when you're born, they cry because this, this shitbox paradigm is full of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they celebrate when you die because like, hey, well done, you're out of here. <laughs> so it's sort of a more comical view on the fact that actually, you know, maybe death is like actually the greatest blessing. They have a beautiful shloka, which is like a quote in Ayurveda, which says, death is like taking off a tight shoe, Mm. (laughs) which every female listener who's ever been in heels for way too long at a function to make a partner look great will probably be able to go, wow, I know what that feels like. So yeah, it's it's a beautiful topic. It's a fascinating one. And it really is the quintessential form of not knowing, right? Like if we knew... If we could think about it, if we categorically knew that when we die, we do go to the pearly gates in heaven and it's just like this incredible festival of bliss and love and kindness. And I'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, 
And it's kind of nice not knowing because it's sort of like, it's like any aspect of life that we don't know about. We, we basically got to like, you know, take the journey and see what happens. Like the unfolding is the process. And so I think being able to reframe the conversation around death as a continuation rather than an ending, right? Even in whatever we've been on here for like 30 minutes or so, we have both quote unquote lost millions of cells. Like that's a death of, albeit at a very, you know, at a molecular level, there's death happening in the millions. I don't see either of us being particularly perturbed by it, (laughs) (laughs) right? So apparently we've got a great relationship to death as it Mm. relates to our physicality, right? So it's understanding that in order for this meat suit, which I take pride in personally and I take care of, I'm grateful for the fact that there is autophagy, there is a dying process, the skin, the nails, like I cut my nails today, that wouldn't happen if it weren't for the fact that there's death and rebirth. So the real conversation around death, I understand, is more to do with our identity, the version of ourselves. But to go back to what we were discussing earlier, that identity is based in language. You know, you take some software off your computer, the computer doesn't freak out, right? So you take the software, i.e. the idea of myself off of the construct of life, it's okay, right? And you are the construct of life. So this iteration of Peter Crone in this lifetime, you know, okay, well, he eventually will come to an end. And during the process of his life, there will be many variations of him, each of which are micro deaths. But the ultimate form of death is being okay with the whole process of death itself. You know, I would assert the moment that that girl left me and then I had that epiphany of like, wow, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. That was the most powerful death I'd ever been through, which was the death of the part of me that was grappling, grappling and holding and grasping onto anything that was of perceived value, which was honestly exhausting. It was pretty inauthentic. I was a very loving boyfriend, but it was love with extra to try and hold on to her. And so that part of me died and it was the greatest thing that ever happened. So Personally, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of death. I'm like, give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I do think that we, you know, we were talking about, you were talking about the subconscious before on the unconscious mind. And I want to circle back around to that in a second, but it seems like we seek out death in these sort of strange ways, you know, that, that, you know, I see a lot of guys sort of heading for a rock bottom or pulling rock bottom into their life because they are afraid of letting go of letting the relationship die of letting the, you know, the version of themselves that they've created for other people die and fade away. And and that that's the very thing that takes them down into the rock bottom path, which ends up obliterating who they were before anyway. And so it's, it is very interesting. I do. and, And, you know, with things like the rise of psychedelics, I mean, you face death in a very different way or you can face death in a very different way under those circumstances. Same with meditation, breath work. I mean, it's just, is the saying, die before you die, Yeah, I think is multi-layered, but there's certainly merit in witnessing the parts of you that are dying off, you know, and that are, that you are letting go of and to come into some form of relationship with, with potentially the grief or the joy or just the awe and wonder that whole experience and what that brings you into, into relationship with. Okay, so very profound. This- it's very profound. Like, and it really is like a, you know, just to piggyback off what you said. Please. Even though, of course, I'm joking about saying I'm a big fan of death. People hopefully understand the context in which I'm saying that, which is the death of identity, the death of the idea of yourself, which by default is going to be founded in limitation. Right. So the relationship to inadequacy, insecurity, or scarcity, everyone can, you know, can really, they have their own personal experience of that. Everybody at some point in their life, even if they've done a ton of work and they've done plant journeys or had great therapists or whatever they've done, you know, then they can relate to at some point, they felt some feeling of inadequacy. And the death of that part of them is a blessing. That is an expansion into a new right? Like it is a birth, ironically, of something that's far more innate to our true nature, right? It's the death of the identity or the ego that is the birth of the essence of who we really are. So, 
you know, we could actually say that my my work is in the arena of helping people die before they die, right? Mm -hmm. So, because I'm helping in the most loving and playful way, I mean it, but, you know, helping people to knock themselves off and so that they can reveal a greater version of who they actually are beneath that. Beautifully, beautifully said and articulated. I'm curious as to if we can return back to this idea of the the subconscious mind and the role that it plays in all of this, if maybe you just if you can give a, a quick sort of definition of the the subconscious mind, the role that it plays, and why you feel it's so important for us to to sort of play within that realm, to understand what's happening within our subconscious mind and, and the role that it plays within our own lives. Yeah. I mean, it's just a term I use for like what I would consider to be um, a hierarchy of coding, right? To go back to our conversation about language and programming. So we could say, we could argue at the deepest level of programming in the human being is DNA, right? So we have chromosomes and there's a form of coding with all of the different genomes, sequences that will give rise to, you've got more brown eyes, mine are a little bit more bluey gray. You know, there's someone who knows what they're doing could find the reason in terms of coding at the deepest level. Then we could say on a much more superficial level, there's certain programming about like, okay, you're sitting down at a restaurant and you're looking through a menu and you know that, for example, part of your programming is like you're gluten intolerant or you don't like, you know, meat. And so that's more superficial programming. And sometimes people will change. Someone who was a meat eater might become vegetarian. That's a relatively easy way to recognize programming can be adjusted. I've yet to meet anyone who can adjust their DNA to have different eye color. Now, unless you're watching the film Limitless or whatever the one, Lucy, was it, with whatever her name was, Scarlett Johansson. So, you know, it seems like they're playing with that, right? Like literally right now with what's going on with these, you know, shots and mRNA and blah, blah, blah. So people play with sequencing, obviously, behind the scenes, and now it's becoming more prevalent. But it's very deep, Right. So somewhere in between the two that I just delineated, you know, there's this what I call the realm of the subconscious. It's not so deep that you need like chemistry and biology to really get in there. Language suffices, but it is deep in terms of like it takes something to get to it, right? Because people know they have anxiety. They know that they struggle with some sort of weight loss issue. They know or not losing weight. They struggle in relationships to find love or they seem to attract people in professional situations who don't respect them and they don't get paid their work. Like these things are known. And I would say they sit on top of the subconscious programs that give rise to the thoughts, feelings, and, and actions that create our life. Mm -hmm. So that's in terms of like, where does it sit in the hierarchy of influencing our life? I think that helps people to go, oh, wow, that makes sense, which is, it's not as deep as the code that is like by virtue of my parents coming together, the ovum and the sperm that gave me a ton of programming. But this is something that's more to do with the nurturing of a very young age where I adopted almost like verbatim certain beliefs and dogmas that were imparted upon me, whether it be Let's look at a religion. You know, someone will take on a religion like because that's what their parents had. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you just start to see how indoctrinated that is. It's not even a choice for most people. It's just, it's just the way it is. You're Christian, you're, you're Muslim, you're Jewish, you know, you're Buddhist. Like, what about if that's not actually who you are? It's something you've adopted, but that I would say starts to get close to the subconscious, right? Because it's, mm. it's sort of, Accept it as though that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And just beneath that is like the identity, the sort of parameters of I'm not enough, I'm not loved, you know, I'm a failure. And then all of the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors sit on top of that. So that's why until you get to the deeper code, you're not going to be able to really make any lasting change. You know, people will try everything, right? They will try affirmations. They'll look in the mirror and say, you're a winner or I love you, you know which again, I don't want to poo-poo, but it's not going to do anything if you don't get to why do you feel the need to tell yourself you're a winner? That's a behavioral adaptation to a deeper feeling belief of the fact that you're not. So you actually tend to perpetuate through those behaviors the very thing that you're trying to escape. And once people understand that vicious cycle, not only is it very revelatory, it's like it's a wow for most people. They're like, oh my God, I thought affirmations are good. I'm not saying they're bad, but why are you using them? And who do you think you are that you need them? Let's get to that. 
so that you can see there's nothing fundamentally wrong with you, then you don't need affirmations. You could maybe use them as an adornment to the fact that you know you're an amazing person, but then it's going to have a different resonance in the way that you speak into that mirror as a confirmation of who you are versus an attempt to try to get away from who you think you are. Mm. Not sure I can unpack it better than that. Mm-hmm. No, 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 it's, 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 it's brilliant. No, it's sort of like, uh, it's just below pre-consciousness in some ways, you know, it's like, yeah. it's the, I mean, oftentimes from, from what I understand, the, the subconscious is, is programmed through conditioning, you know, and like you said, that conditioning is usually done in our early years, you know, yeah. very, very young. I'm watching, I mean, I have a nine month old son and okay. I'm watching him come into contact with reality. You know, I'm like yeah. literally watching his consciousness being, being born and, and how he, I mean, not being born, but, but interacting with reality around him and he's learning things and, and you know, what's dangerous and what's not. And it's very yeah. fascinating to see some of those different layers of of him being developed right now in his life and so yeah what a great teacher i i grew up you know in england and so when we when we go to get our driver's license in the uk you have to learn what over here you call a stick shift we call you know it's a manual versus an automatic car so you have to understand the gears and how to use a clutch so that you depress the clutch you change gear you slowly you know relieve the clutch you use gas there's, there's a lot more to it than just hitting an accelerator or a brake. And so I use that as a sort of an analogy of like how we learn to begin with, like your son right now, everything is sort of quite laborious, you know, and it mm-hmm. needs a lot of repetition. Like with anything that we adopt, if someone right now wants to go and learn how to play the guitar, you know, not as a judgment, but they're going to be awful at it just by virtue of the fact that they don't know how to play, you know? So your son, who's maybe starting to stand up if you hold his hands or walk a little bit, and he's not walking and he's certainly not riding a bike and he's certainly not performing in like any sort of Olympic sports, right? So he's developing, his central nervous system is developing to create balance, like just the phenomenon of balance. Yeah. So driving the car, I use that, as I said, as a comparison, because I remember when I was first learning, even with my depth of skill or intelligence or awareness, like it's a novel experience. And so it takes so much attention, you know, you're messing it up and you, you let the clutch out too quick and the car kind of jolts forward or you're trying to change gear and the clutch isn't down hard enough yet. Then cut to like three, four, six months later, you know, like, don't judge me, but like back in the day, you know, so then I'm driving, I'm on a phone call and I'm eating a sandwich. You know, and I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not even thinking about how I'm changing gear. That's right. subconscious, right? That, yeah. Right. So, you know, it's like that's where we develop skills over time that then sort of get stored into, you know, not the RAM, you know, sort of rapid access memory, but rather the deep memory. And, mm-hmm. and that's why it is also a lot harder for people to change those habits is that this is repetition, repetition. So it's sort of two ways that we get to develop subconscious in the formative years, just by virtue of the fact that our brain is in a different state. So it's almost like quite literally recording everything that's going on, which is why children are also incredibly, you know, can be easily influenced. They're very gullible. And then later in life, you know, it takes a lot more because we don't have that mindset. In fact, we become more cynical. We become much more, you know, self-conscious and defensive So that's when we rely on habits and repetition, right? So we need to consistently do something in order for it to become second nature. So that's that subconscious is deep. It's it's got a lot of weight, and yeah, it takes some discernment and dedication to be able to tweak it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with that. Having gone through some of that, I mean, a good amount of that over the years, but I mean, I feel like somehow our time is up already. And that is (laughs) shocking. You know, I like looked up and I was like, how is it? How have we been in conversation for 52 minutes already? And our, and our, and our time is up for today. Well, Um, I'm going to answer another one or two if if, if it works for you. It's up to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think what's, what I find interesting about this conversation that we've started to go down is, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit because one of the things that I'm curious about is is a little bit more existential in nature. And I feel like you're the perfect person to talk to about this. Okay. And, and I feel like it will land for people right now. So there's, there's two parts. One, I feel, and again, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like culturally 
we are are missing a a good amount of meaning within our daily lives. I, I feel like the average person is missing meaning. I feel like culturally there's this sort of lack and void of meaning within our culture that's been quite quite prevalent for for a number of years. And I'm curious to get your take in terms of how do we come to terms with that? Like, how does one start to deal with that? And because I think for a lot of people, they're looking at what's happening, regardless of where you sort of like land on the spectrum of of beliefs of what's happening in the world right now. But I do think that a lot of people can feel this sort of void of of meaning that's maybe either happening in their life, or they can see it in the people that are around them. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, one, what impact does that lack of meaning have on our minds? And two, what do we do to sort of combat combat that? Like what approach or how do we begin to make meaning out of meaninglessness? <laughs> Small no, question. Sorry. You told me you could stay, so uh, you but can't back out the, now. Let's end on a nice light question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do we be happy? No, sorry. Okay. So no, listen, it's very pertinent to what's going on. And it's certainly something that I'm not oblivious to. And I speak out quite readily about, but so meaning, you know, words are important, right? So if I look at the way that I feel you're contextualizing meaning, we could also say purpose is sort of a synonym, right? And because the way I break down meaning, honestly, is a little bit, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, but really the meaning of life is quite quite simple. It's whatever you make it mean. Hmm. And there's a million different ways to make, you know, people make life mean to them, right? Like it's about this, it's about that. So that's one, you know, that's just sort of a toss away that could be profound for a lot of people. What's the meaning of life? Well, whatever your brain is currently desired to make it mean, you know, if you, if your life is about the meaning is making more money or settling down and having a family or going and living in a cave or becoming politically powerful and having some sort of platform, like, Okay, that's whatever you're making of me. Purpose to me is a much bigger conversation, which I feel like your question really speaks to, which is, you know, to have a sense of, I'd say, aliveness and contribution. I think as human beings, we're sort of designed primarily to want to make a difference. Mm. And I think that sensation is inherent, but it gets suppressed by fear. And there's an immense amount of fear right now. So I think purpose hasn't actually gone anywhere or meaning in your, to use your word. I think what's happened is the relative delta between purpose and pure survival has gotten so out of whack. Hmm. The fear is at an all time high. And we could argue absolutely intentionally created by propaganda and media so that there is a greater sense of capacity to control through compliance. Because when people are scared, you know, something called mass formation, the four stages of mob psychology, right? So you mm-hmm. generate as much fear as you can and da, 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 da. People can look into that in terms of what I feel has actually happened. But when we're in a state of fear, and then secondly, we have a feeling of isolation because now we're not allowed to see people. And then thirdly, we lose a sense of value because we don't have a job then yes, purpose really becomes moot, right? It's like, like who has time to make a difference? I'm literally trying to survive and put food on the table for my family. So there's a certain degree of tyranny in the way that this has been created. But I want people to understand that it can actually be the catalyst for even greater purpose, right? So the expression I often use, the quote, which is smooth seas never made a great sailor. And my dad was a sailor, God, you know, rest his soul. But like, if you're always on the calm waters, you don't have to learn the intricacies and the difficulties of navigating troubling waters. And I'd say right now, we are rapidly like your son learning how to navigate, walk, what's dangerous, what's not, what's authentic, what's not. I think as a society, we're in the same sort of conundrum of exponential growth. And there is sadly immense amount of collateral damage. It's tragic, you know, from people taking their lives to the to go to the latter part of your question, the the absolute oppression that is creating insane amounts of mental sickness with suicides far eclipsing any deaths and viruses in different parts of the world. So I think this is an opportunity for the individual to take respite, to sit back for a minute, just like when you asked about anxiety. And I said, can they just sit with 
what are the myriad of feelings coming up? And most of it's going to be helplessness, pointlessness. You know, that's a very strong part of the human psyche and the ego where we feel fundamentally that we're victims of life. Mm. That is an old paradigm that doesn't serve anybody. And so I would say at this time, meaning and purpose is to transcend the illusion that you're a victim. It's so ever-present to think that the way I feel is because of something and that we don't have say. No, you're immensely powerful. You're incredibly extraordinary. We're co-creators in life. And I really do feel that this whole shit show, excuse my French, that's unfolding is because it's revealing a greater paradigm on the other side. You know, this is no different to the sort of the phoenix rising from the flames metaphorically for each of us in a society that has been very, very dysfunctional with stacks of corruption that's been going on in the background for decades that's now coming to the forefront with an insane amount of sickness that has always been there and perpetuated by these big companies that make money off people being sick, which is, you know, is pretty abhorrent. People are now recognizing, wow, that's got nothing to do with health. They're pretending that they care, but they actually don't. And so there's so many. And then we look at educational systems with all of their biases. We look at obviously the government systems around the world are just totally corrupt. And so many of these old traditional systems, I feel, are falling apart. And that is the birth of more purpose. That is the birth of more meaning where we can go, hang on a minute. If we were to take an objective snapshot of society, of our species, it's not impressive. Like if a higher intelligence being landed on planet Earth, they're like, wow, these guys have got a lot to learn. They harm themselves, they harm each other, and they harm the planet. Like that's really not that advanced, right? So I think this is an opportunity for us to, you know, many people talk about it on social media of wake up and, you know, what does that mean? It's like, yeah, people are in a slumber, sort of walking around somewhat numbed, oftentimes sadly because of medications and drugs and whatever and actually recognize the extraordinary gift that it is to be a human being and to find alignment with each other, to come from love, to come from kindness, both to ourselves and to others. And that, to me, is certainly what I'm committed to in terms of meaning and purpose, is Mm. this is the opportunity as, quote, unquote, to go back to my favorite conversation of death as one iteration of society is dying, you know, and there's a lot of, as I said, fallout but a new version is being born. At least that's my, you know, my take, that's my commitment, that's my stand, and I'm going to help support people in whatever way I can to step into a world that is much more harmonious and founded on the principles of freedom, love, kindness, and vitality. Yeah, well said. I mean, it's, it's, there's so many things that came out to me, you know, as you were talking about that. I've recently just handed in a manuscript for a book, and, and in it I talk about the victim as like one of the final bosses that we have to face in shadow work. And it's so interesting because in doing that, I did a bunch of research and found that there's a, there's a lot of research that shows that there's an evolutionary advantage socially to playing the victim, whether or not you've been victimized or not is, is sort of irrelevant in, in the findings. And so it's interesting because it's, I think what we're starting to see is that socially society seems to be re constructing itself and refiguring in some ways around, not around victims, but around victimhood, that people have realized that they can gain a tremendous amount of social power over other people by saying that they have been harmed by their words. You know, it's like if I say something offensive on social media, that's, you know, that's justification for somebody being physically violent towards me or right, whatever, right. Because, because they've been oppressed, you know, they, because they've been oppressed or harmed by me in some capacity. It's like, well, I don't know if that's really yeah. a good idea, you know, a good way to go. The, the other thing that came to mind was a quote by Ian Watson. He said, you have to be persuaded, reminded, pressured, lied to, incentivized, coerced, bullied, socially shamed, guilt tripped, threatened, punished, and criminalized. If all of this is considered necessary to gain your compliance, you can be absolutely certain that what is being promoted is not in your best interest. Amazing. I, love I love that, that quote because it's like, you yeah, I mean, that's great. I think yeah, I of course. posted it at some point, but yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. And it's again, like, it really is, a, it's a very simple com- you know, conversation or a question for people to ask is, is this coming from love? Like what would love do is one of the posts I put recently, you know, like what would love do in a particular situation? Mm. And, and we all know intuitively, 
like what feels good. And I'm not talking like Pollyanna-ish and la la la. Like literally, like does is is what is transpiring feeling like it's coming from a place of authentic love and kindness, or is it coming from a place of some sort of abuse, harm, coercion, manipulation, and to list whatever that gentleman said much more eloquently. And and people know, and that's why there's so much defiance right now, thankfully, that people aren't just rolling over and, you know, quote, unquote, giving up every ounce of freedom that they ever fought for and worked their asses off to get, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's like, you know, if you were in a relationship, that type of that type of pressure and coercion and being socially shamed, it's like that probably wouldn't allow that, you know, if we if we witnessed that. But yeah, okay, I feel like a sister or like, yeah, yeah exactly. I feel like you and I could could jam about so much more for hours and hours and hours, but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pause yeah. here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing some of your frameworks and your insights and your wisdom. I know that people listening are going to to have gained good amount from this conversation. We'll have the links in the show notes to you and your work. But just for those that are listening, where would you like them to go to, to sort of follow along with your work and your journey? Well, firstly, thank you. It's been fun to be with you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I generally care about humans. So I hope people did get to take stuff away. Two best places are just my website, petercrone.com, C-R-O-N-E, and my uh, Instagram, petercroneofficial. Awesome. Wonderful. And for everyone that's out there watching, again, we'll have the links for that in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will appreciate the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.